Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Father, give me the work of Your Holy Spirit. Speak biblically and sensitively about the glory of sex in marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. You got the topic. This is part two of sex and marriage. And really the best way in the future, someone's listening to this on an MP3, is to hear this sermon that's coming in the context of part one. find that important. Let me just summarize last week very briefly in part one. God created sex. He created human beings as male and female, two sexes, in order to have sexual relationships. He created it for marriage. To be experienced within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. He created that as a reflection, a metaphor, a picture for the glory of Jesus and His bride, the church. So as we sit this morning in different ages, whether you are single or whether you are married, all post-pubescent people, male or female, are sexual beings. You didn't ask for it. It's who you are. And the only place to experience that sexual contact with another human being is in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That's why our verse says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled because God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. Now, so, but single married, we all have, again, pre, in the midst of and post-pubescent humans, not little children, we all have sexual desires. You know, as human beings, you didn't ask for this either. You get hungry. Now, think about the three most powerful, natural things in life. And all of them are good, and all of them can be horrendously harmful. Hunger. 
Okay? Sleep! Wonderful! Not if you, you're a sluggard, though. And sexual desires. So, if gratification for those sexual desires is precluded from you taking part in it because of God's command, because you are not a married person, God's sustaining power to refrain is available to every believer by the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit and your faith and your trust and your prayer life pleading for contentment in the state that you find yourself in. Apostle Paul said this in first, I mean, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound and have plenty. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of facing hunger, of abundance and having need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And Paul says, this natural drive, I'm a hungry and there's not enough food. He says, I can learn to be content in Christ for that. If that's true, unmarried people in Christ can find the contentment that God does give to those who receive it in that situation that they find themselves Easy for you to say, Joe, you're married. I wasn't always married, and that's irrelevant. I became a Christian at age 19. I wasn't married until almost a month before turning 32. All right. So having said that now, if Satan if his demonic powers cannot lure, tempt you into sexual promiscuity, oh, Satan's got another thing he loves to do. He loves to bring into us religious folk a legalistic asceticism. He would love to tempt you into asceticism. Asceticism is that type of doctrine or thinking that says, I will heroically deprive myself in order to become more spiritual of those things that God does not forbid me to partake of. Is that clear? Or are we too distracted? Okay. In other words, like foods certain comforts and sexual pleasure in marriage. The Apostle Paul strongly condemned this coming into the church when he said in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, quote, 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. If Christ, excuse me, if with Christ, Christian, you died to the elemental spirits, demons of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. And he goes on, these have indeed that kind of doctrine, don't do this, don't do that, of things God says, I never said don't do that. These all in religion have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul, in one of his last letters before he died, warned Pastor Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1-3 to of 1 Timothy. Now, the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What do you mean, Paul? He goes on. In other words, he says, these are those type of religious, quote-unquote Christian folks, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 80, 63 or 64 when Paul wrote that. Okay, early on in the church, but the early church, known usually as the first three to four hundred years of the church, even though Paul warned against teaching that sexual pleasure and enjoyment in marriage is somehow less spiritual than abstinence or being celibate, even Paul warned against it. The early church didn't hear. The idea that somehow pleasure sexually in marriage was less worthy of spiritual depth and growth developed. The early church father origin in the 200s, I mean, it was so much in the culture, origin had himself castrated. You just get rid of Sexual temptation for him altogether. The great church father, the great, and I mean this, and you know I mean this for my life, the great church father and theologian on many subjects, St. Augustine blew it on sex and marriage. 
He was very sexually promiscuous before conversion. He wasn't converted to about age 31, 32. He had a concubine and a child by her many years. He's converted, and one of his first attractions was St. Anthony, these ascetics, totally depart from the world and meditate on God and I'm not going to say there's nothing good about doing that. for, t- But that's where he's drawn. And in the culture, Augustine thought, for me to be more helpful spiritually, to grow more deeply spiritual, it will, rem- it will mean for me to remain unmarried and sexually celibate for the rest of my life. I think he should have married his concubine. He didn't do that. Augustine taught that marital sex is a necessary evil in order for procreation. It's not the best path for deep spirituality. And that strain of thinking back in late 300s, early 400s, has just reverberated here and there through the church and thus through the creation and development of Western culture and society. Now, in our text, the term marriage, bed, it refers to sex. It refers to sexual, vulnerable play between a husband and a wife. And it's not dirty. Living by faith in Christ and His promises believes that sexual activity is good and it is to be pursued and enjoyed in the marriage bed. I'm going to read again where we were in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and continue on and hear what Paul says. Chapter 4, starting with verse 3, Paul says, These are those who teach or forbid marriage. Okay, just Don't just think, okay, made a covenant. Marriage, sexuality, sexual activity in that covenant of being married. They forbid it and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Why, Paul? Listen to him. For everything created by God is good. Did you hear it? Contextually, sex in marriage. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. See, faith in Christ, deep spiritual walk with Christ, says, I'm so grateful for this wife or husband that you have given to me and for these bodies created for sexual activity. Oh God, it is a good gift that why would you even give that to me? But you did. Christians are to think that way. 
That is, those who believe and know the truth. It is the world that has corrupted sex by its misuse. I'm just going to let you just think about those words. The world, sin, culture, it has corrupted sex by its misuse. That's why our verse says, don't let the marriage bed be defiled by having sex with a person who's not your spouse. That's the text. That's how you defile it! Are you married? Having sex in that marriage. Expressing love making is not defiling you. It is good and to be received with a heart of prayer even while you're making love, if you so choose. The Bible itself does not hide the joy of sexual intimacy. Sex is not just for having children. But in this book, the Bible, there's how many books in there? Well, don't pull one of them out and only make it 65. There's a little book. It's really a song. It's poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And there's this little book called the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon, it's poetry. And really... Some have said that it's a poetic commentary, and I would agree with this, a poetic commentary on Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. So, if they weren't ashamed, what were they as husband and wife to feel? That's why the book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon is there. It answers that question. So, either you can listen or you can turn there. Two books after Proverbs. Let's read a little bit. And try not to blush. Why am I ultimately doing this in this two-week series? Am I going to talk this way? I, I struggle with it. I want to be sensitive. There's a lot of people. We're all messed up to one degree or another. But ultimately, the kicker is this. This is the Bible. In the two places above any in every other place, 
It's not movies, and it's not the public school system. Where sex ought to be discussed is in the home and in the local church. So, the book begins, chapter 1, starting there in verse 2. She, the woman, says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Now literally in the Hebrew, it says, let him smother me with kisses. And that word love there, clearly in the context, has physical, sexually erotic connotations. Just jump down to verse 4. She says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The king is her husband, Solomon. So lovemaking, she's saying, is poetry, okay? She's saying, lovemaking makes me feel more buzzed than a tall glass of wine. For your love is better than wine. Alright, chapter 2. Verses 3-7. to She says, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Let me just... Okay. Apples and raisins and... Fruits. Okay, got to get this. We're not in that culture. Those were, in their culture, symbols of erotic sexual intimacy. Okay? She says, and now in poetry, she's saying, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in His shadow, and His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and His banner over me was love. Let me just talk. He brought me to the banqueting house. She's not saying, hey, we went to some public party. It was their bedroom. He brought me to that party! Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. For I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head. And His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it. Okay, she's got the symbolic language of fruit and raisins, wine, taste. But her point is, my husband is the real thing that those symbols point to. And she says the effect on her is being brought to a party. Fun, play. Enjoyment in 
the marriage bed. Gazelles and does in the culture, the ancient culture, are also symbols of eroticism. Verse 7, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by gazelles or does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's for you unmarried people. That's what she's saying, I think. She's saying, this kind of lovemaking is so powerful. The daughters of Jerusalem, careful that you don't stir that up before it's time. That is, before it's appropriate place of commitment in marriage. Married people, it's time, though. It's time. Look down, verse 16, 17 of chapter 2. She says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, back to me. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. The lilies, poets remember, the lilies here describe the parts of her body surrounding her breasts. In chapter 4, verse 5, it says this, Your two breasts, is he speaking, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. So she's saying, she enjoys His grazing among her lilies so much. She wants it to last all night. That's what she means by before, really, dawn. It's still dark. It's still nighttime. We're not waking up to go to the fields yet. Turn back! Don't leave! Specifically, what for? See at the end there? So that you, my husband, would be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Again, it's poetry. She's the mountain. He's saying, or she's saying, she's visualizing Him enjoying her like a mountain with clefts, nooks, crannies of her body. Okay, okay. My blushing? Uh And and, and that's exactly what he's saying in chapter 4, verse 6. Until the day breathes, until dawn happens, we're we're in our room. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee and the sun comes up, in other words, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. That's his why. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. All right, let's do a couple more. Hi, honey. (laughs) 
Maybe you should sit behind that wall. I can't see you. Chapter 5, verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and my spice. I ate my honeycomb in my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then, poetry, others say about what's going on there in the marriage bed. Eat, friends. Drink. And be drunk with love. The history of the church may in some circles, and just because it's come down through culture, it may say one thing, but God has Solomon express, my wife, I want to drink you up. It says, my honey, if you were, no wonder most of us call our spouses honey, huh? If you were honey, I would eat you. And then that's God. I would eat the honeycomb. Okay, that's poetry. That's how it talks. That's Bible. What, what do we do? Here's God's, that's God's response when He says, now, I'm looking at this. He says, go for it. Eat. Drink. And be drunk with that activity. That's what he means by love. Now, I know I have six kids. And it did take me after until the fourth one to figure out what was causing that. But I have learned pretty well now what causes that. This language right here in this poem is not necessary to have babies. I know enough biology to know that. Solomon is not like many sexually repressed people throughout church history or in the church today. You know, that type of culture, type of religion that can produce a context for the following joke to be funny, where years later the husband says, yeah, way back on our honeymoon, my wife said, kiss me, kiss me. But I said, no way, honey. We shouldn't even be doing this. One person got there. Just think about it. Listen to the tape again. The Bible says, yes, you should be doing that also. Alright, one more. 
I'm going to read nine verses here, okay? Remember, just, just poetry. I'm going to read some poetry, all right? Chapter 7, starting with verse 1. This is what he says. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. You're rounded... Now, go slow, okay, guys? Think about this, married men. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. You've got to remember she's Jewish. You got that one, didn't you? All right, all right which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king, that's him, is held captive in the tresses of your hair. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh loved one, with all your delight. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. See, the husbands, he's saying, it is good. Never let it go and constantly pursue having your breath taken away at the sight of your wife. He says, she's got grape clusters. She's got towers. She's got a belly button. That's what it says. She's got a belly button. He says, here's poetry. It's like a belly button. Okay, if you love wine and you're a wine drinker, or maybe it's like you love ice cream. It's filled with ice cream that you love to eat from. She's a palm tree to climb in order to partake of her sweet fruit. Okay, all right. Is this really in the Holy Bible? It is because it is holy when we enjoy the fruit of love making in the context of marriage. A wife toward her husband, a husband toward and with his wife. We've seen God creates sex 
not only in order that procreation happens, but clearly He's commanding it. Eat, drink, be drunk with love with language that's far beyond mere procreation. Yeah, I've got to say the, this word. God created, and it's really weird if you just want to think about nature. He created the human female with the ability to have an orgasm. And that is utterly unnecessary for procreation. It's not how it happens in the animal kingdom. And so this, what we're seeing, All right, everyone take a breath. (laughs) This love-making or sexual experience is not merely physical. It is not merely biological goes beyond that. That's why God said, and the two will become one flesh to share your body this way is to share your soul. And it can create deep intimacy. And it can create horrendous trauma and pain. Okay, just, just a really quick illustration just to get that over. Eating's a physical thing too. If somebody in his children that happens to us forces you to eat something that you don't want, you don't desire, you, can, you might get a little irritated, but you're not going to be undone for the next 40 years. It's not going to be so destructive to your soul. Somebody forces you to have sex against your will. Is it kind of stupid to say, well, two months has passed, any kind of physical damage to your body, it's healed now, just a physical thing. So, get on with it, you're better. We know that's not true. Because those victims of rape, incest, molestation, they're not healed just because physically they're healed up now. Soul is involved for the good or for the bad. And scars remain. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, Christians, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. There's a joining of souls and spirits in sexual activity that goes deeper than any of us imagine. That's why Paul concludes right there in 1 Corinthians, says, flee immorality. Flee sexual contact with another human being who is not your spouse in biblical marriage. Okay. Now, everybody here have sinned. Okay? And the effects of our sin and the effects of the sins of others against us go really deep. And many marriages bring these past pains, sins or the effects of others and baggage into the marriage bed. Like fornication or adultery or a homosexual fling, or addiction to pornography, or to having been molested, or divorce. Okay, here's the plea. This is why it's so cool. Everything is to be wrapped up in the Gospel. If you, right now, have been made a new creation in Christ, then continue to allow God, your loving Father, by the power of the Spirit and the work of His Word to free you from the pain and or guilt of the past. Remember, Jesus with a prostitute at his feet. A whore, a hooker, a streetwalker who has probably easily had sexual relations for money with over a hundred men. Loved her much. And used her to show His mercy and grace and the hypocrisy of Pharisees. And said, the one like her who is forgiven much that one loves me much. The more we get the Gospel, the less room there is for regret of your past. There's repentance, and then there is loving Him deeper than any of the holes of our pain or guilt or sin went. And loving Him because 
in his sovereign care. That hole went that deep. He or she who is forgiven much, I have created a capacity for them to delight in me that much. The gospel turns our guilt Just listen. I'm just going to give you just two real quick. Just hear it. To the person who does not work, but instead trusts Him who justifies sexual offenders and murderers and thieves. Name it. He justifies those people. You believe that? You trust in that? Have you stopped trying to feel like you're worthy and believe Him? He says, that person's faith is counted to them as righteousness. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Trust the promises of the Gospel and continue to lay hold of forgiveness and healing. And married people, let us bring that to the marriage bed. Now, I'm just going to get a couple more points because I don't, I mean, this could be a seven-week series, but we're only going two, so forgive me on time. Whether you are married or single, Satan endeavors constantly to steal and to use sex in order to come against the children of God. Okay, now, this is a marriage bed sermon, so so I'm going to address it. Married people, don't let him but instead, you go ahead and use sex against Him. That's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there. Verses 3 to 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal, that means sexual, marital privilege of sexual relations. Okay, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And every man easily just said, Yeah, amen! Any time. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Because, or for, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not 
deprive one another. Except, perhaps, by agreement for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But, now hear this, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Think about this. This is doctrine here. Ephesians 6. Right there. Okay, it's already ringing in your head. Believer. Anyone who's a believer. We're in a battle. We have an enemy. And hordes of enemies. And principalities. And demons. Satan is out to destroy you. What do you do? Take up the shield of faith. Believe what? The Gospel. The Word of God. You feed upon it. You meditate upon it. You trust His promises in the midst of your daily life of temptation. Take up the shield of faith. But we just read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that married people are to defend themselves by having a sufficient amount of sexual intercourse. It says, don't abstain from sexual relations in marriage too long so that Satan may not tempt you. So, which is it? Do we battle Satan and his temptations with the shield of faith or with the shield of of sex. The answer for married people is both. Genuine believers are to come to the place where they believe that love making is a means of grace to enjoy and to use as a weapon in the battle of the Christian. Does it sound like an appropriate interpretation so far? Now, let's notice one more thing, and then we'll close. From 1 Corinthians 7, if you stay there. Verse 4, let's read it again. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When you're married, each has the right over the other's body for sexual gratification. That's what he's talking about. Now, In the context here, Paul nowhere says, demand your right. It's strange. But he says something else. Right before verse 4, let's read that again. 
the husband should give. He didn't say demand here. He didn't say demand your right for her body. He said you should offer up your body and give to his wife her marital, conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife should give to her husband. In verse 5, he goes on to say, do not deprive one another. See where he's pushing it? You got that? It's like so much else in the Bible. Once you go and you, you read Ephesians 5, the wife is to submit to her husband, and here's your big drum to bang all the time. She's not doing that! That's, you just totally misread everything. It's not your job to make her do it. It's your job to love her. Or here. That's it. You hear what the pastor said? You hear what Paul said? You hear what the Bible says? Give me your body! That's not what Paul's saying here. He turns it. Give. In other words, he's not saying, especially to us men, Every time you feel like it's a good time for lovemaking, demand your rights regardless of her feelings, her disposition, or timing. But he does encourage the husband and the wife to be ready to give of their body when the other wants it. And thus comes the complexity of life, huh? Marriage. Okay. Men and women. Okay, you can say the obvious. It's not so obvious in our culture anymore, sadly, because of higher education. Men and women are utterly equal in their worth, and they are utterly different because they're men or women. And we men and women off, operate very differently when it comes to sex. You've been married long enough to figure that out? Look, this is, okay. Here, these are generalizations, all right? You come to me and say, that's not true in my marriage. Which doesn't disqualify anything I just said. Talking about, in general, of course, there's always, you know, percentages and anomalies, okay? But in general, look, a woman, what is important for her to get to the place of lovemaking with her husband is first feeling connected, talked with, communed with, watching you hold a baby or cleaning the dishes. And it's a process and it's time. And that gets her saying, I would love to. In other words, I feel like I want to enjoy lovemaking with you. And it's all backward for men. Because what makes men feel connected to our wives is have sex with us. And thus, you got an irresistible force and an immovable object. And so Paul says, Work on giving. 
from both directions. Let me just give you another illustration of the difference. Not that I know this from experience, I just I read it in a book, okay? For a woman, say life's been very busy for last couple of weeks. Husband's hardly been home, working late hours. They have not had a, an adult conversation in two weeks. They've had no date. She's busy with the children in the house. And it's just hectic and tired. And she feels distant emotionally. Thus, the last thing on her mind is sexual relations. The husband and him, same situation. He's in that marriage, in that context. All you got to do is look at him funny. He's raring to go. We're utterly different. So, husbands, love your wives. That's the command. And that means you will care about her, not just her body, but you'll care about her as a person, as your wife. And therefore, even though you will want it much more often in general than she will, many times you'll just say, okay, honey, just go to sleep. On the other hand, if a woman always waits until that time of the month during her ovulation where God has created her body to actually work like a clock where hormones say it's really a good time to enjoy sexual relations with your husband or, and I know that's not all ladies, okay, or it could not be that time of the, the month, but she only waits for those times when you spent ten hours that day romancing her by washing dishes, taking care of the kids, and maybe having a dinner out and having a little conversation. Now she's ready. If a woman or a wife only waits for those times in order to have sexual relations with her husband, then she is being insensitive to him and what it is to be a man and not a woman. Sensitivity on the husband's part means do not always demand your rights when you feel like making love. Sensitivity on the woman's part is love your husband by offering yourself even when you have no sexual desire. But, Simply because you love and care about that man. One more thing. There is an old saying, that which creates children. No, I got that wrong. That which is created by sex, called children, can destroy sex in marriage. Children change dynamics. They take time. They wear, especially women, out. Okay, warning. Know it. Be careful and watch it. Okay, here we go. Four 
to eight times a month. Okay, remember I started with four ladies. That's a pretty good average, I think. Now, if your batting average is higher than that, by no means use that, what I just said, to have to bring that batting average down, okay? <laughs> Surge. Honor the marriage bed and glorify God in it. And as we worship, close out this service. I know. God created marriage. It's a glorious thing. You can think this way as single people now. You're not supposed to Wait till you're married to think about what it would be to be married. You work on yourself. You let God start to sanctify you. You think about such things. You ask questions. You want to hang around with married people. But there's a way, husbands and wives, as we thank God and delight in Him for His gifts. If you're married, thank Him for the gift of that husband or that wife to the glory of the name of Jesus.